The Leia Heilpan Show. Sponsored by Step Finance. Your go-to DeFi portfolio manager on Solana. Luno, if you're just getting into Bitcoin, it's the perfect place to start. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode of the Lay High Pen Show. Super excited because today we are talking about my favorite thing in the whole wide world. We are talking about freedom. We are talking about Bitcoin and everything that's going on in the world. We do have somebody all the way from Australia. Um, he's obviously not in Australia right now, um, but we're going to get into it. Anyway, so like I said, he is really interesting. Um, he's also a Bitcoin OG. So that's going to be really fun, learning how the space has changed. So joining me today is the co-founder of Step Finance, George Harap. George, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, Leah. Oh, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Surviving. I'm really <laughs> excited to speak to you. Um, there's so much to discuss. So for those that don't know, um, George is a bit of a Bitcoin OG. He's been in the space for, um, it's 11 years now. Is that right? Yeah. I stopped counting after it gets past 10 or something. So <laughs> that is so insane. And you know, you're George is big on freedom. He's got Australian roots. So we're going to get into all of it. Um, but just to kick things off, really, you have been in the space for 11 years. Um, I think you're one of the first miners. And I know that there is an interesting story behind this. So you got in in 2010. Tell me the story about this. Yeah. So I, it was a different world back then. Um, you know, there was Bitcoin was a website that mainly, maybe like a couple of hundred computer nerds really cared about. Um, and uh, there wasn't all of this, you know, uh, podcasts and videos and documentation and everything like that. So uh, it was quite a fringe thing back then. But uh, I came across it because of my interest in like, uh, uh, like computer hardware. Basically, it was like, oh, you can mine these digital internet coins. And I knew nothing about finance at the time. I didn't come from it, you know, from that angle. Um, I was just sort of a random tech guy at the time uh, working a, a crappy job. Uh, packing boxes uh, while doing my my studies. So um, so no, that that was great. Um, got into it, sort of just building uh, a miner in my spare time in my room. It was a heater which made money. That's the best kind of heater. Um, and I used to buy parts off eBay, and I used to just sort of piece them together and, and do stuff how like that. How did you but... know? Wait, how did you? I have to stop you because people keep saying, "Yeah, I just built it." What do you mean? It's what 2010. Yeah. You're building a freaking miner. Like what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, back then, like, it was all sort of, you could basically mine uh, Bitcoin on a laptop. Um, and then it sort of progressed into uh, progressively more difficult. So it started right. with the laptops, everyone could do that. Then it was like, you could have a graphics card and a computer a little bit more expensive. And then, you know, people had all these newfangled sort of ways to increase the processing power to, uh, to try and uh, try and get more Bitcoin. So, um, yeah, look, I, I was at the forefront of all of those different phases. So whether it was, you know, GPUs, whether it was ASICs, whether it was FPGAs slightly before then, um, I was in the first batch. And basically what happened is I couldn't afford, like I was a poor student, I couldn't afford like a fancy miner. And back then there wasn't like all of these companies and stuff doing it. It was literally just a bunch of random people. Um, so I took out a loan that I couldn't afford. Um, I just like maxed out whatever the slider was on my bank. And I was like, oh, I pay a 20% interest rate. Yeah, whatever, who cares? Let's just do that. And, um, and buy a Bitcoin miner. And then also back then, like you could go and give the money to some like shady entity overseas and you don't know if the miners can actually arrive on your doorstep. Um, like how is that whole you know, thing going to work? So anyway, I did that. And uh, the company happened to be in, in sort of rural middle of nowhere America 
So I thought, well, I probably should go and see where this mine is being manufactured. So I got on a plane. I went to Kansas City, Missouri, and uh, and then I saw uh, people might remember Butterfly Labs back then. I went and visited them and blah, blah, blah. But uh, yeah, so I was sort of one of the first ASIC batches, and they were the people that um, were the first ones to do it. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I sort of decided to, to get on a plane, and like the dude met me at the airport, and uh, he was like, oh, yeah, we're not ready to go, you know, see the see the miners yet. Um, but do you want to go up in my plane? And I oh, was wow. like, I was like, all right, um, sure. <laughs> yeah, early twenties. Some guy's going to take you around in a plane. Sounds pretty good. So we did that, and that was a fun experience. And um, yeah, I got to see the operation look pretty much legit. Um, and uh, yeah, sort of got got started from there. But you know, fast forward a few years, um, little guys couldn't really compete anymore. You know, that's where you had the industrial people coming in, like a big factory full of it. Uh, you know, millions of dollars invested in these machines. So, hey, that was time for me to exit and, and get out of there, probably about uh, 2014, something like that. What a story. I mean, did you get to mine a lot of Bitcoin? Yeah, I, so I mined a lot of Bitcoin. <laughs> I also lost a lot of Bitcoin. Um, I eventually did pay back my 20% interest rate loan. Um, okay. And that was like after six months of delay of delivery of these things and blah, blah, blah. So, like, I think... I went through a crash course and you know one thing when you're young you don't value money um so like back then uh i was i was making decent money but then you know on the forums there'd all be these these different investment schemes that people would get into oh, no. i would lose money on those right um the whole mindset of oh you just got to hodl and that's all you have to do that didn't exist it was kind of like people always looking for some sort of uh yield or something like that or borrowing or you know, yeah. some sort of thing there was always something yeah, that's crazy because I, I know everybody who got in at the beginning um, always um, says, you know, they didn't have that same mentality. And I think that's why nowadays the mentality is so strong. I think that's why Bitcoin maximalism is so strong to protect because a lot of people obviously lost a lot of money. Um, so really just to protect people. But you are traveling around the world. You're a digital nomad. Is that what you would call yourself? Yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. So let's understand why, because the reason I ask why, because I know that it could sound fun to be a digital nomad, but I, I've tried it to some extent and I find it really difficult, you know, working, maintaining a healthy lifestyle. Like I find it difficult being on the go. So like, why are you doing it? Why don't you just settle in one place? Yeah. Pe like people often think, oh, you're jet sitting around and you just go and like stay in awesome hotels and you hang out and wouldn't that be fun? Um, I've been doing it for two years now and it's I'm kind of coming to the maybe to the conclusion that having sort of multiple locations around the world that you spend more time in is better than sort of short stints here and there. Um, and okay. I guess, you know, I, I've I've been been doing it for a while, I've been to like seven different countries all throughout, you know, this pandemic times, uh, you know, Georgia, Dubai, um, uh, Portugal, been here in Turkey um, you know, a couple of other countries here and there as well, uh, Greece, um, London, uh, yeah, UK. So uh, sort of been around in, in a bunch of different places, sort of just optimizing for what is the place which is going to like not get up in my business, basically. Like not, they're not going to tell me what I, what I have to do when I walk out the front door. Um, and you've seen like especially uh, in Australia and other places where like, oh, you can't even like walk three kilometers from your home. And, oh, who's measuring the three kilometers? Why not 2.98? Like, are you going to go and, like, you know, discuss that on an app with a policeman? Like, that sounds dumb. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't want to be part of any of that. So I've kind of just been bouncing around for a while, just trying to find a place with, with uh, 
you know, a good mix of everything that I'm that I'm looking for. And and I guess, you know, what is that 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 these nomads look for? I think one thing that people um, people don't value in the beginning is community and having like mm. other nomads, other people to talk to. When you're in one place, you have your friend group, right? And you go and see them every so often and maybe, you know, go out for dinner or whatever. Um, it's quite easy. Whereas if you're in a strange foreign country and you don't speak the language and, you know, your bank cards probably get shut down or something like that because nothing works um, or they think that you're somewhere else or something like that, it can be quite hard. So um, I think one thing, yeah, definitely there's, there's these nomad hubs around the world, which seem to be sort of coalescing a bunch of different people uh, in different cities. So I, I think that's probably the way forward is a lot of people that have the same sort of like-mindedness all coalesce in the same place. And, uh, and that's way better than trying to do it solo yourself. Yeah, I think um, that is so important. I know Mexico, Tulum, Playa del Carmen has like, both of those places have a good um, digital nomad community. But you, so you said that you, you started this two years ago. Was this directly because of the pandemic? Yeah, pretty much. Um, I, so you I were had, in Australia? I was in Hong Kong. So uh, oh, yeah. I, I lived in Hong Kong for six years um, and I had a, a startup there, which I co-founded, which was the first crypto remittance startup, um, you know, using Bitcoin initially to send money around the world, a bunch of different countries. Um, so our, our core audience was uh, cash to crypto. Um, but the problem was that when the pandemic came, like all of the physical cash locations, they all had to shut their doors. So basically our mm. business went to zero. Um, and in, in that case, it was like, well, we don't know how long this thing's going to last. All of our customers have gone to zero. It's time <laughs> to wrap up the company and move on to the to the next thing. So, yeah, I left in uh, in early 2020 and I, I got on a plane to New Zealand at the time, which wasn't as crazy as it is now. But, um, yeah, back then it was uh, it was it weathered it a much better for the first, say, six months than the rest of the world. The rest of the world got a little bit crazy, but uh, NZ was okay. But then NZ got crazy. So uh, I, you, I got out. Did you, yeah, I mean, like, sorry, just say, did you have plans to go back to Australia or even New Zealand? Um, not really. I mean, right at the moment, right now, like, Australia has been banning um, their own citizens of coming back to their country. Uh, and especially, I knew that, yeah. Yeah, and they've been doing that for a while unless you meet all of these different criteria. And also you need permission to leave. So just like a prison colony back in the day, you need the overlord's, you know, assent in order to leave. So you have to literally... The whole of Australia. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think they've recently changed the rules a little bit, but it's still like if if you haven't uh, been vaccinated to the nth degree of whatever that is, um, then, uh, then you still have to seek permission. You still have to do all this stuff. You have to prove everything in the borders. Um, if you don't, they'll send you to, you know, middle of the desert somewhere to, to go and, and hang out there for two weeks. So, <laughs> oh man, I, I don't want any of that. So, um, yeah, like it's, it's just so silly. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think there are like other people like myself where like you have an Australian passport and it says on the front page, um, oh, you know, you shall allow this person passage uh, freedom towards, you know, entry into Australia at any time, blah, blah, blah. Most countries have this little spiel at the front. Um, but then it just doesn't apply. You know, someone just clicks their fingers, makes a rule. Oh, yeah, sorry. No, it doesn't apply. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Was that in the contract of, of the passport or not? Like, you know, so, um, yeah, yeah I, I don't really see myself, um, you know, doing too much there anymore. Do you know what I found out yesterday, actually? Um, our passports are not our property. It's actually the government's property. I didn't know that. So you don't own it. it. So you yeah, so you don't actually own it. So they can just take it from you. Um, my brother actually told me that yesterday. Um, so that is crazy. Do you, do you have family in Australia still? I do. You know, I, and I'd love to I'd love to visit them, but uh, but I can't really. So it's kind of like, how do you optimize for that? Like, it's 
it's kind of like, can I get people to come out? But then I've heard of stories of people having to uh, contract lawyers to write letters to the health ministry um, to get yes, approval correct. to leave. Um, I've heard the and- same stories. Exactly. Yeah. So certainly like, I've been speaking to some people at conferences and they've said they've had to do that. So it is quite a quite a you know, process to try and actually like just just get on a plane. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Like I, um, I, I was spent some time in America and I was thinking about my family in England and like I just didn't know what the future was of England. And like, luckily, it's OK. But, you know, at the time, I'm just like, it's hard, you know. Um, but yeah. anyway, moving on, moving on from Australia, you are literally living off of crypto which is wild. I'd really love to understand how you do that. And then also when you're traveling, are you choosing places which are specifically crypto friendly? Yeah, definitely crypto friendly helps. Um, Some of the countries certainly around sort of the Middle East region and uh, Eastern Europe are generally pretty good for crypto and and pretty good for like freedom and that sort of thing. Um, So like when I was in Georgia for a while, uh, Georgia has a lot of miners as well. Uh, they have uh, you know, pretty easy uh, regulations on anything. Um, and, uh, you know, anyone can just sort of turn up. It, before pandemic times, they had a visa, which was the tourist visa. It's literally just one year for everyone. So just get a stamp, boom, one year, see you later. Georgia? Um, yeah, for Georgia. So not many countries have that, right? Like it's usually, oh, it's three months, but it's, you know, two months within this time period and different things. So uh, it's also about like trying to optimize for what, what, what are the rules in these different locations as well as, as well as crypto. But yeah, I think for, for now, like, you know, I've been booking all of my accommodation with crypto. Um, I've been How paying. Doing that? Well, there's like intermediary websites. So, like what? Uh, so Travala is, is a good one. Um, they have, so they actually have the Expedia backend. Um, so everything that's on there, flights or hotels, it's pretty reasonably priced. It's not amazing, but Hey, it's the convenience of being able to transact. Um, and, uh, yeah, so, so you can book. Like, how does that work? Like, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but how does it actually work? Cause I know, I know Travala really well. I know the founder, he's a friend of mine, but I, I've never used it. I just haven't. Cause if I'm booking something in crypto, I just use my crypto.com card, which is basically fiat, but you just top it up in crypto. Right. Um, yeah. and then you get the 3% cash back. So like, how does it, how does it work? I don't understand. Well, so you can use like a crypto.com card, but the problem is I don't have a proof of address cause I don't live anywhere. So, and I haven't had yes. a proof of address for literally years. So um, I have to find all of these alternative things. Um, so yeah, like with a, with say Travala, like they, uh, you find a listing, you find a you know, hotel that you want to stay at, cool, um, go through the booking process. And then when the payment comes, they'll give you a list of different uh, cryptocurrencies. You can pay them whatever, uh, even stable coins and stuff like that. And you just easy. send it like just address it. to address. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, very easy. But the problem is like often as well, I've noticed um, is all of these different countries, they often have like their own payment um, mechanisms that only support cards locally. So I found that when I was trying to book stuff when I was in the UAE, um, Georgia has similar things. Turkey has similar things. So if you want to, uh, you know, just, you know, use the food delivery app or something, you need a card from that country. So even though it says Visa or MasterCard on it, it doesn't mean anything. And then also there's also like weird restrictions that you wouldn't think like, say, the Crypto.com card. It would be classified internally in, say, Visa's system as like a debit card. Um, and then some payment providers in some countries don't accept debit cards. They only accept credit cards. And credit cards are tied to banks and banks in that local jurisdiction. So, yeah, what often, do you do? yeah, it's, it can become really hard really quick um, to try and sort of weave it. So, But luckily, some of these countries are also pretty easy to go and open a, like a fiat bank account. You can literally turn up there with a passport same day. They give you a card. doesn't even have your name on it. Um, and then off you go. Um, Georgia's like that. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, Turkey, a little bit like that as well. Um, other places so you, you were are able, in- you were able to open a bank account in Turkey. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah That's actually, amazing. It, it's super easy, you know, and and certainly in Asia, when I was living in Hong Kong, like forget that trying to do that really easily. Like you can spend weeks at HSBC arguing over, you know, them needing a piece of paper to prove that you exist. Um, so it's really quite fascinating that look, um, the fiat system can be uh, can be quite interesting in some of these sort of emerging countries. That is fascinating because I spent about three months trying to open up a business bank account in England <laughs> with Barclays. Yep. Um, I got it in the end. Woo. You know, thank you bank yeah. for letting letting me give my money to you. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, that's just that's just so insane. So that's fascinating about Turkey, actually, because the president of El Salvador was recently in Turkey. Um, it, that was rumored to be about Bitcoin. Um, so what what do you know much about the sentiment in Turkey right now? Is it particularly bitcoin crypto friendly it's super crypto friendly like um for for us and i think probably most exchanges and crypto companies out there um turkey is usually like top three in terms of audience of of users for for whatever it might be um and that's the case for us as well but you see it like bus stops are advertising apps which do stuff um there's like otc desks like walking down the street in some places like you see like all of these different coins just on the wall and they're like, yeah, you can like just do $100,000 if you want there, or you can do like 100 bucks, um, just walk in, cash, boom, done. Um, so, uh, so yeah, you know, th- there's that kind of stuff going on here, yeah. which is super cool. Um, Why do you and, think it's so friendly, though? Well, um, I think, well, here's the thing, right? And this is what I've always thought is the best rules and regulations are no rules and regulations. So in the case of Turkey, there aren't really any prescriptive rules and regulations for things. And as soon as governments and, and uh, you know, regulators, they get in the way, they go and like do a white paper that takes them six months to do. They go and hire a bunch of people from PwC to go and write it. They come up with like a hundred different things of crypto regulations and they go, wow, this is going to bring all of the people to our country and everyone's going to love it and it's going to be great. I haven't really seen uh, any country that's sort of actually done that. And it's it's generated more interest in that country of, of people wanting to go there. Like I was, I was involved in what is it, the Isle of Jersey, the Isle of Man, um, in their initial uh, introductions for crypto regulation many years ago. And they were trying to be this crypto hub. And, oh, if we pass all of these rules, then that'll attract people. Didn't work out. Um, And, you know, the reason was it was just too hard to do anything. So I think the moral of the story is if you just keep it easy, you just let people, if they want to freely exchange with each other, you know, some bananas or a coin for a banana or whatever it might be, you just let them go and do that. Um, now, obviously, most states are probably not going to like that. They're going to want to cut along the way. So it's kind of like, how do you balance those two things, right? Some states will go heavy handed. They'll make a bunch of rules and regulations, which like uh, make everyone flee, like we saw in New mm-hmm. York and a bunch of other places. But uh, yeah, just keep it open and free. That's the best way. That is literally the only way. Um, it's funny that you say that. I can't remember. What did I see today? Oh, I saw um, somebody who tried to a candidate to be um, the mayor of New York actually spoke today about wanting to um, ban Bitcoin mining. I'm just like, just thinking to myself, like, have you guys not ruined New York enough? Like, what are you doing? Like, you are literally destroying your own place. Um, but anyway, so back to like living off of crypto. So in terms of booking things, you're using Travala, which is really cool. Um, but you don't have an address, right? So like, it's hard to open up a bank account. Um, so how do you do that? And then also, how are you paying for things like groceries or paying for a taxi? Like, are you getting Ubers? 
Yeah, <laughs> it's a good <laughs> question. Um, yeah, I guess like the proof of address thing, that's an eternal problem. Um, one of the things is, well, if you want to get stuff off Amazon, when you're living in the UK or something, very easy. You know, press a few buttons and then it comes to your door the next day. Um, often I'm using friends' addresses here and there to get the packages sent. Um, maybe I get something sent to my hotel if I need to buy something online or whatever it is. Um, and, uh, yeah, just storing stuff as well is pretty hard. But often cash comes in handy, um, certainly in, in sort of Eastern Europe, Middle East. Uh, but how do you get the cash? Well, cash to crypto places. So you can go to like a Bitcoin ATM or something, um, or you can go to one of these OTC shops, um, or you can use, you know, one of the few cards which does work on an ATM. I think I have um, something like 15 different bank accounts at the moment, but only like five of them work. So <laughs> the other ones are just like, just don't work. Because I've been, you know, open one up in different countries, right? Um, and just put like a minimum amount in there. Um, but then as soon as you leave the country, like it doesn't work with a new phone number and you know, forget it. Like I remember being on the phone once with, one of the Georgian banks being like, uh, I'm in the UK, I'm using an Icelandic VPN, I'm using a phone number from uh, the United States, which is a VoIP number, by the way, and I can't accept calls on it. Um, and I'm also telling you that I'm not in Georgia anymore and I want to change my phone number to something else. So Jesus forget Christ. like anyone trying to compute all of that, right? So, you know, there is um, a bit of craziness which no bands do have to navigate. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, in Turkey... I know um, that the fiat currency is not doing very well. What's the overall sentiment right now? Yeah, I think like there's a bit of doom and gloom from the outside world of, oh, you know, it's terrible. Everyone's queuing up for food. I haven't seen that. Um, oh, I've really? seen, yeah, like I go to the, the supermarket. It's got everything there. Everything's super cheap. Um, certainly if you're a local Turk and you're earning, you know, a fixed income in lira, that's bad when the currency depreciates 80%, you know, in a year. Um, you know, so is that I, what I, it's done? It, it has depreciated 80% in the last year? Something like that. Yeah, I remember seeing it when it was at like eight to the dollar and then it went up to like 18 and then it went back down to 13, I think it's at the moment or 14. So, um, yeah, crazy times, right? Um, but uh, yeah, so I don't see any of the craziness. And I think, you know, I spoke to someone today as well, you know, one of the, the local exchange operators, and he was saying that actually people kind of see it as a way out and a way out for a middle class as well. Because often, you know, if you're a, you know, a, a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, um, you know, there's not really too many ways to sort of increase your purchasing power without, say, investment. So a lot of people, I think, in these you know, different countries around the world might be seeing it as an investment thing, which I guess it does conflict with the initial vision of crypto. You know, you've got to start with the philosophy before really you, you get into it. Um, but, uh, but, hey, I, I do consider that, hey, people see their savings account depreciate by 80% and they're probably just looking for an escape valve. So crypto Yeah, I mean, even in Lebanon, I believe that the Lebanese pound crashed like 90% since 2019. Um, yeah. it, it's, just, it's just insane. Like I, I have like a, this prediction that we're seeing so much um, adoption right now, but I just don't think that we're going to see that kind of adoption from the, I don't even want to say the West, from more developed countries i just i 100%. just don't think that's where the adoption is going to come from it's it's kind of like the same way that crypto for the individual is that way to kind of jump you know generational wealth and build generational wealth and all this stuff so i think we're going to see the same thing with countries like el salvador the rest of latin america turkey like we'll see it in the middle east um yeah fixing. i mean if you got if you've got nothing to lose you know these countries are, are definitely going to go for it i think so el salvador is a good example right they they yeah. uh, USD was was the the local currency previously, 
um, and they don't have any monetary policy over that. There's like 22 different currencies pegged to the US dollar as well. And most of uh, sub-Saharan Africa is pegged to the euro in some way with these different currency consortiums. The euro that is held to back those currencies is in Paris. Um, and the USD that is hel uh, held to back some of these other different countries around the world held at the Federal Reserve. So, you know, these countries, they're kind of screwed in, in their national currency and they can't really price things correctly. Um, so I think that, yeah, like crypto is that escape valve. Uh, it is something that, you know, they can get one step ahead. And um, yeah, like you've got nothing to lose. You know, why not? Uh, if you're being screwed by uh, the IMF and the World Bank coming into your country and, and giving you extortionate loans and, and these sorts of things in, in US dollar denominated, and you're already, you know, uh, you know not a, a productive country that can pay it back, um, you might be thinking of, you know, taking a bet on something else. And I think that's, I, I think as well, like there will be more countries perhaps this year. Uh, you know, El Salvador, obviously, you know, forging the way. Um, but, uh, but there are a lot of just sort of random little island places around the world which have no real reserves. But it's, it's like, do you want to be, do you want to create something valuable for your country and, and you know, increase the wealth? Um, because crypto is a good way to do that. There's people like myself, which will get on a plane and go wherever in the world that it's crypto friendly. And they'll just work there. They'll invest there. They'll go and buy, you know, uh, maybe a house or food or whatever in your country. And that's good. That's not going to happen otherwise. So, yeah, I think it's when people realize that, um, you know, it'll uh, it'll do pretty well. And I think Portugal is probably doing a good job of that, attracting the crypto people recently. Um, you know, there's a lot of buzz about uh, being nomad there and, you know, they're crypto friendly and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, yeah, maybe we'll see more of that from from other places. Yeah, I think it's it's so interesting because it's not just about um, changing financial systems, right? Like it's not just about adopting Bitcoin. It's about putting the country on the map, particularly in terms of tourism. Like El Salvador's tourism, I don't even I don't I don't even need to look at statistics. I don't care. I'm going to just say that El Salvador's tourism has probably shot up since um they've announced you know bitcoin is legal tender people they should they should open up um i was talking to i think it was jason williams about this like a few months ago actually um that they should open up some kind of like tourist the thing for the the volcanoes to see the volcanoes which are powering the bitcoin network um yeah. i've been dying to get to el salvador you know i want to spend money there i want to um add value to the or not that i want to i will end up adding adding to the economy because i want to see what's happening um so Absolutely. It's so much more than just changing uh, monetary networks. Um, but you mentioned the philosophy. So I really love to understand your thoughts on the philosophy behind Bitcoin. I know a lot of people say that it is apolitical. I understand why they say that. But at the same time, I'm always like, eh, it's not that apolitical. Yeah, um, I think ever since I've been in, in Bitcoin, like initially it started as uh, something which is against the nation state. And ultimately, that's yes. where we wind up. Um, it, it, you can say whatever you want and you can like people will come out and they'll go, oh, we're going to make a fund for it. And, you know, institutional investors are going to get into it and countries adopt it. But fundamentally, nation states rely on their, their local national currencies. And, uh, and if they can't print that out of thin air and, and create it and debase it and do all these sorts of things, then they can't pay the people with guns, the police officers to enforce their rules. So I think ultimately crypto hasn't been tested yet. And this has always been the thing. Crypto's, you know, uh, Bitcoin's either going to be worth a zero or a million dollars. That's sort of, you know, my philosophy on it is that if it really does solve this political problem and people see a, a world where we transition, you know, nation states to perhaps, you know, living within their means, like, by the way, many of them had to for thousands of years using gold, which they couldn't debase, um, uh, or at least, you know, not as easily. Um, I think, yeah, it, it would be better for the world. But look, there's going to be some teething problems there. 
and uh, people are going to fight it. And certainly the vested interests are going to fight it. So we, crypto hasn't been tested um, just, just yet. Uh, and I think a lot of countries come along with banning and these sorts of China's tried to do it 10 million times. Doesn't work. Um, you know, we'll sort of see what happens when some of the developed sort of Western countries try and, and ban it and go after people a bit more. I do think that's the ultimate end game. And anything in between is kind of like a nice blissful period of, of the, the in-between world. Uh, but I think that if you take it to the logical conclusion, like Bitcoin, crypto, it's either going to be 0.5% of GDP, 2% of GDP, 5%, 20%. At what point do you see that reversing and why? Why would that ever reverse? Like, let's say it gets to 20%. Why would it go back to 15% or 10%? People just decide, oh, you know what? Like, um, you know, a, a digital money that's easily accessible on my app. I don't want that. Uh, I'm going to use a thing which I have to KYC for and, and jump through 10 hoops and then they can take it from me and and uh, all these sorts of things. So I, you do reach, I think, and especially, like you said, in some of, I guess you would say, like developing countries that have nothing to lose. Um, like I think exactly. they are going to really lead the way. Um, and I'm super excited for for them leading the way. Um, so, yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be fun. Yeah, I agree with you. I also think that um, because right now El Salvador is obviously getting a lot of um, uh, getting a lot of rubbish, I guess I put it that way. Um, just simply for, for in some ways gambling the country's money, right? Because Bitcoin's obviously crashed a lot since um, since its all time high. I believe that they did buy in at around sixty k. I could be wrong, but I think they did. Um, so I don't know, um, you know, how that's going to be for them. So they're getting a lot of rubbish for that. And so I'm excited to get to another point, which I believe would be in about four years where are, you know, in the next cycle um, where the new lows are like two, $300,000 for one Bitcoin, right? Rather than like what we're seeing now. Um, and then that would make a lot of sense. I mean, you're putting the country's reserves, um, you're buying it at around 50K, Bitcoin's at 300,000. That's amazing. That will be some incredible gain. So I'm excited for them to sort of prove themselves. Um, but anyway, moving on from Bitcoin a little bit, I know that you, obviously I said, are the co-founder of Step Finance. Um, so tell me about Step because that is dedicated to Solana. So you must be somewhat bullish on Solana. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm also bullish on DeFi as well. You know, we, we spoke about all of these different payment card problems and, uh, you know, sometimes some countries might work effectively for being able to pay for stuff locally, sometimes not. Um, and DeFi really is like the financial system of like Bitcoin itself is, is more like a reserve currency, whereas mm -hmm. DeFi is more of all of the other things, whether it's loans, uh, whether it's, um, you know, swaps or something like that. Last year, when I was in NZ, I was uh, borrowing against some of my crypto to, uh, it was literally paying me to borrow. And then I would go and buy like a Big Mac. And then my Big Mac had a positive ROI. So, you know, just crazy stuff like that that you can do, right? So every time you buy a Big Mac, it's uh, it's going to increase in, in value. So, um, but, you know, there, there's sort of lots of different interesting things that you can do in DeFi. And, and again, innovation is, uh, is not limited. You know, there's always someone somewhere that's going to come out with some random thing that you never heard of. Um, which is going to do something pretty good. So I think, yeah, Solana's obviously going down that route. Um, I guess last year you would say might be the year of NFTs and all these different things. Yes, there's all sorts of different other things happening, but I'm most bullish, I think, on decentralized finance applications where I don't need to uh, struggle with my card being a debit card and not a credit card and issued in the wrong country, and therefore it doesn't work, even though it's literally a visa. Um, you know, so are, are there other things which which we can do other financial applications, which, um, you know, people can pay for stuff, uh, which will work. The problem is 
like merchant processing and paying for stuff in crypto, like that's been an old problem that's been around for many years. No one's really nailed it. Um, but mm. I do think DeFi with the with the loans and the borrowing against thing, um, that is something new. And I think a lot of these crypto people, like maybe they just want to get a mortgage entirely in crypto and uh, like don't want to interface with the fiat system at all. And, and this is their way to do that, um, these different applications. So yeah, it's step. You know, all of these different applications, they come together in one place. That's what we're all about is like put all of those different things which might constitute your portfolio into one location. And uh, yeah, you know, uh, Solana is sort of what we focus on at the moment. That's what's seeing a lot of this, a lot of this growth. Um, and uh, actually what we're seeing is, you know, people talk about, um, you know, fees for a lot of these blockchains and these sorts of things. And yeah, I mean, look, it's been spoken about for years, but it does impact, um, you know, people that are new getting into it. I'm sure you've yeah. probably come across friends, family, they have like maybe 50 bucks or a hundred dollars or something, and they want to get into it. And you're like, uh, you know, what can you tell them to do? Um, and if you have to go on something like Ethereum that costs you like $200 to do anything, I mean, forget it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think there is an opportunity to onboard the masses. And this is just another way of onboarding more people in decentralizing finance. And through that, they'll find out about Bitcoin, they'll find out about El Salvador, they'll find out about all of this different stuff. But the problem is like, you just got to create financial applications, which are better than the existing alternatives. And certainly in many places, like, you know, they don't have uh, access at your finger to invest in whether it's stock markets or get loans without permission in like 90% of the world. So, uh, so this is really the way to achieve that, I think. So yeah, that, that's why I'm bullish on, on Solana and, and what we're doing at Step. Help me understand because I struggle with DeFi. Like I get, I get the point, right? Like I, I, I'm with it. I get it. I support it. My problem is it's just so new and there's always rug pull after rug pull. Um, and I never, I find it so difficult understanding how to navigate it. So where do you start? You know, you're the digital nomad. You're the one living off, off of crypto. What protocols are you using getting great staking rewards, APYs? Help me out here. Yeah. So I, I think that firstly, it does help to get an understanding of the ecosystem. Like a lot of people might come into it. They're like, where do I put my money? What do I do? And then they just go, yeah. someone told them to go over there. So I'm going to go over there. Um, but it's just like uh, Bitcoin. Like Bitcoin, there's been many exchanges that have been hacked and lost money over the years. I remember Mt. Gox back in the day. Um, you know, that was a fun time. So like these things have existed before. We have navigated all of these different problems along the way. So it's no yeah. different. Um, you know, why would you put your money at MT Gox as opposed to anywhere else? Well, maybe, you know, you didn't trust them um, or, or whatever. Well, okay, that means you need to do research. So same with DeFi protocols. Um, Solana has a bunch of them. Uh, we, we put a lot of those uh, on step. Um, so whether it's yield farming, uh, I think that's also one way in for, for new people to not really take too much risk is let's say you have a stable coin, $100. Um, you can get yields of like 20% uh, on that in, in DeFi uh, pretty easily. Um, but I so, always get scared, but I always get scared. I don't know, like the rug pulls and the hacks, like I'm not well, good at DeFi. Surprisingly, I, I think you'd be surprised. There's there's not really, if you look at it, a percentage of like the actual money that's in there, it's not really that much. Um, like I think the total value in DeFi now is something like 380 billion. Last time I looked at a chart, it was probably like a month ago. Um, 380 billion is, is a lot of money. Um, and uh, I think that the, the numbers coming out for different hacks here and there, it's pretty insignificant to, to a lot of that. So I, I would just say like anyone interested, it's, uh, it does do some research. Um, and I wouldn't like take anyone's word for it of what you should do, but I would just sort of direct people to look at different areas. I think yield farming is certainly an easy area. You can just have a stable coin. You can earn you know, a good yield in your stable coin. You can get used to it. 
Um, Solana has a bunch of farms like that. We put them on step. Um, so, uh, so yeah, something along those lines to get started. And you I just want to go back a sec because you've obviously been traveling around the world. So in terms of um, products, blockchains, protocols, cryptocurrencies, what would you say is most needed right now? So I ask, like, just my train of thought is, okay, so Bitcoin has this narrative that it's this store of value, right? Um, so when you go to Turkey and you go to these places, are people transacting in Bitcoin? Or are they finding these DeFi protocols more useful in terms of lending and borrowing, mortgages and so on? I think definitely people are onboarding into like the Web3 stuff. Um, mm. I'm not seeing people talking about Lightning or anything like that uh, in anywhere that I've been. Like you saw that with Twitter, right? I think they enabled Lightning a couple months back. They did it and then everyone forgot about it because like, you know, there's maybe not that much interest in it. But there is interest in a lot of these DeFi things. So, um, yeah, I think people... You know, fees are important to them. Speed is important to them. Um, there's a, a bunch of different apps that can do things fast and you can pay for stuff. There has been for like 10 years. Um, but I think, yeah, some of these new financial things where people can either get a yield or get a loan, um, that kind of stuff is new. And yes, like, you know, the maxis will say, oh, there's tons of different blockchains. And you're right, there is tons of different blockchains. Um, I think it's worth having a look at these different blockchains and seeing, you know, for your own, you know, uh, education, what they're actually trying to do and, and looking into it a little bit further. So, you know, TVL is one metric which people can do that. You know, total value lock, the amount of money that people are putting on there. Um, a lot of people can make a lot of claims, but uh, if you, you know, if some DeFi thing has, you know, $100 billion in it or something, it's probably worth looking into. And there's probably a bunch of people which are interested to, to use it. Absolutely. So with everything that we have, you mentioned Web3, you like for people who are just tuning in now, just to re remind you, George has been in the space since 2010. So he's been, he's bit, basically a Bitcoin OG, one of the first miners. Um, so I want to know how the space has changed. I know we spoke at the beginning and you sort of said, you know, we didn't have these podcasts, we didn't have this kind of infrastructure. But tell me more, how has the space changed since 2011? 10, sorry. Yeah. Um, look, I, I think it, the, the discussion points, um, some have changed and some have maybe not. Uh, I think the discussion points that um, evolve around Bitcoin haven't changed for that long. Uh, it's been many years that we've been talking about stores of value, uh, yeah. payment systems as well. So these points generally don't change. But I think the philosophy behind it sometimes get lost. And in the early days, there was a lot of that. You know, this was a non-nation state currency. This was something which uh, was decentralized and anyone could partake in and blah, blah, blah. So I think that message kind of gets lost along the way. And and I've often thought about this, like, is this just a natural thing, which which is always going to happen? Because, you know, when you when you think about, oh, the good old days, like there wasn't that many people. And now you've got literally tens of millions of people in this thing. So you will get new narratives evolve. You will get like people talking about different stuff. And I, I think like trying to force it in one direction is probably bad. So like I would say the biggest thing that has changed is, is the philosophical, you know, the philosophical sort of, you know, why Bitcoin in the first place? Well, you know, we don't want people that are unelected that I don't know and they are controlling my money somehow and they get to go and create it for zero and I can't do that because I don't have a license that says bank on it. Um, that's bad. Let's try and build a better system. Um, and uh, I think if people sort of looked at it from that perspective, but you know what? Some people don't care. And that's the thing is some people yeah. just want to achieve a specific goal. Maybe they want to pay for something. Maybe they just want number to go up. Um, and it, as frustrating as it can be that people don't want to talk about these things, 
um, I think that that's just inevitable, right? Like that there will be people that will just get in it because they want to get rich. Um, and Bitcoin, crypto, it's not like that. Um, you're not going to get into it and then instantly become a millionaire. Um, so, yeah, I think if people take a longer term perspective, um, that, that will be much better. But, you know, one thing I would say is I don't see people going back. Uh, once they're in, I, I don't think like they might dabble up here and there, but they're never going to never touch it again. It's always going to be something that's going to reoccur at different points of their life. So we are moving towards that future of everything being crypto in some form. Um, and that's pretty exciting because, yeah, the numbers don't lie. Like there's always just number of users going up, which is great. So with every, with all of that in mind, where do you expect us to be? Um, let's say like five years from now. Because, you know, we've had the ICO boom. We've had DeFi. We've had NFTs. We have the metaverse now. Um, where do you, what do you expect to be blowing up next? Oh, that's, that is a good question. Um, I think predicting like five minutes into the future is hard enough, let alone five years. But I, yeah. I would say that there will be some sort of, um, friction between the state and crypto at some stage. And I would not be surprised if it comes in the next five years. Um, and that would be what type of, what, sorry, what type of friction? Because what would you, what would you call now? Like now is friction. No, you say it's uh, going to get banning worse. people, putting them in jail and saying anyone who transacts in it is going to jail and you're not allowed to do it. And you must use the Euro and you must use the pound and you must use the dollar. Like ultimately thing, crypto is not big enough to, to get to that point yet. But when it becomes a large percentage of GDP, it will. Um, so I, I think that eventuality, and, and some people will say, um, like certainly the institutional investors, like the sailors of the world, they'll go, well, institutions dampen this. And the, because they have billions at stake, they're much less likely for uh, to allow the state to, to go after them and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, maybe. Um, but I think ultimately the state is going to have to, to change uh, fundamentally how it functions um, if it is to adopt a new sort of money Um there is no way about it. Yes, maybe they, some people can try and convince them otherwise, but it's going to come to a point where they're going to have to make a choice, um, either use a sound money or don't. And, uh, and some states will go down the path of, you know, banging people on the head, unfortunately. But hey, enough doom and gloom. Um, I think uh, DeFi will continue to grow, though, uh, in, the next, in the next few years. NFTs, gaming. Um, yeah. You know, we, we've seen gaming, like people paying for new guns and skins and whatever in video games for like, a long time um replacing that with an nft probably makes more sense um, the money that people spend in these games they can at least sell it and get some money back i don't think many gamers realize that they can literally like make a ton of money in this thing um so maybe that will be an eventuality this year perhaps yeah i mean so i'm just reading the comments now somebody's written something which i was just thinking um i'll put it on screen i disagree there are too many huge players involved already to make things illegal at that level I don't know. I do just, that's the kind of stance that I take because let's look at Michael Saylor, MicroStrategy, for example. They bought, I think it's 25 million yesterday, um, dollars. So that's around 660 Bitcoin, I think it was. What would they do? Like, yeah. what, what would they, what, how would they, would they, would they be forced to, to sell and liquidate their Bitcoin? Maybe. Uh, I mean, some countries, actually Turkey, you know, recently with the, the currency sort of exchange rate problems, um, people were forced to, uh, exchange their dollars that they had in bank accounts into lira if they were doing certain transactions like real estate transactions so that might be a case where it might be like hey you can't denominate your books in bitcoin you have to forcibly go and buy our shitcoin usd and uh, and do that that might be one thing i get the point of 
look, there's a lot of big players and therefore it's harder for them to make rules. But this is not going to be the case in 200 different countries around the world. And a lot of different people have a lot of things to, to gain or lose from it. So I think you will see sort of the balkanization of a lot of different countries. Some will embrace it. They'll love it. It's great. They'll reap the rewards. Some which have a lot to lose probably won't. And yes, you know, having big people involved, it might help. But ultimately, like if everyone in the country starts transacting in something which is not the national currency, then that like there, there is no way for the state to operate. Like are you going to pay policemen and, and firemen and whatever else in something which is, you know, Venezuela style devaluing? Like they're literally not going to turn up to work. Um, so, you know, that might be one scenario, right? And that's, people have been speaking about that kind of thing for years. Um, I, I hope that, uh, you know, a lot of the institutional buyers can like dampen any clampdowns. I, I am very hopeful for that, but there is always a chance of something else happening. Do you know, so I, I, oh my God, I, I'd say that I'm an optimistic person, um, but I don't know that I am. Do you know that? Like given what we've seen over the last two years, right? It's just fascinating the way that you have medicine passports for certain states in the land of the free um, just blows my mind. The fact that we even got there, um, like the rest, I know England's pretty much back to normal now, which is just unbelievable um, in, a, in a good way. Um, but the rhetoric that we had in England um, at the end of 2021, when they were trying to decide how to move forward, whether to go into lockdown, whether to bring in medicine passports or whatever it is, um, people were talking about um uninjected people, I'm choosing my words wisely um, for algorithm purposes. Um, people would say that um, uninjected people, they called them refuseniks um, and like all these, you know, really vilifying them. Um, yeah. And so like nothing would surprise me. Um, I do hope that the amount of institutional backing that it has, particularly from the likes of um, MicroStrategy, Elon Musk and Jack, not that Jack can do much at this point because he's not part of Twitter anymore. Um, but I do yeah. hope that that would dampen it. Um, but I am yet to see. I think that states will have to adopt this new technology, but there will be yeah. a fight. CBDCs are coming. So that's what I was going to say. Like, you know, yeah. China, right? Like, you know, China, social credit scores, these sorts of things. Australia was talking about them recently. Like, no, know, of I course, Australia. Um, so I think those sort of things might be trialed in, in some places and, and they're going to want people to use their coin, their CBDC coin, which is oh, just going to yeah. be like a bank database thing. And it's the same fear. Literally nothing changes. People often have this idea. I remember talking, literally the IMF uh, uh, invited me like 2015 to give a talk to central bankers in Hong Kong about crypto. And I was saying, and about stable coins, I, I think it was stable coins might have been 2016, something like that. But, you know, coins which are pegged to the national currency. And, um, yeah, a lot of them were laughing it off. They were saying, oh, that will never happen. That's, that's dumb. Um, you know, good, good one, you know, tech guy. You know, go sit in the corner and, and that's fine. But, um, hey, look where we are now. A lot of nation states are, are implementing it. So, yeah, people will do that. Now they'll want people to use their coin. You know, they'll want everyone to use China coin. And, and if you don't, you won't be able to catch the bus. Um, that's already a oh, case yeah. with China's credit score. Um, so, you know, living in Hong Kong and certainly through all of the protests of 2019, we saw a lot of what can happen with, when the state doesn't like, you know, what you're doing. So, um, yeah, you know, I, I think it will eventually, some some places will go like that. Um, but then hopefully there's the El Salvador's of the world, uh, which will embrace something easier and better. Yeah, I think that my optimism really is if you've been able to survive the last two years, you'll be all right, right? Like if you've yeah. been able to travel still, um, you know, live your life and you've not lost too much sleep. I've lost so much sleep over the last two years. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if you haven't lost too much sleep and I think you'll be able to survive whatever comes because like the tug of war is coming for sure. I just don't think it will win. 
Yeah. Yeah. And there, there will be like a multipolar world as well. You know, there'll be competing interests. Some countries will adopt, some won't, you know, people will, uh, people and money and capital will flow to the countries that do. Um, so yeah, I think you will see like oases that might emerge of, of some places in the world, which is great. George, it's been so interesting chatting with you. Um, I can't believe that um, you're such a Bitcoin OG, um, mining Bitcoin from your computer in 2010. That is just nuts. Um, Back in the day. Where can people Where can people find you and follow you? Probably the best place is uh, is on Twitter, um, George underscore Harrop. So uh, so check it out uh, there. Uh, also step step dot finance. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm usually available on social. Just type me in, you'll you'll see a bunch of stuff. Yeah, guys, definitely go follow George. Um, if you're just tuning in now towards the end of the show, he's been a Bitcoin since 2010. That's 11 years, which is pretty insane. Bitcoin OG, traveling the world, fleeing tyranny. from um, Fleeing tyranny. He's originally Australian. So, yeah. There's a lot running of tyranny away from there. That. <laughs> There's a lot of tyranny there. Um, George, thanks so much for coming on. It's been so good chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And guys, thank you for watching. Don't forget to tune in next week for another brilliant guest. Until next time, we'll see you then.